Look into the Word. Let's look at the fifth chapter of Romans this morning. We touched on a subject last week that is significant, very important. Paul has written to us, <coughs> excuse me, that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And he said, not only so, but we also rejoice in our suffering. And we talked some last week about rejoicing in suffering. That's, a, that's an awesome thought to me, to rejoice in suffering. That doesn't come naturally to me. Probably comes naturally to you, but it doesn't come naturally to me. I don't have a category for it other than the fact that I read it in Scripture and I see that Paul, when he speaks of it, he speaks of it as a natural progression of something happening in our life, that we rejoice in suffering. Because we know some things about suffering. We know that what it does, we know what it produces in our life. And hence, there's cause for rejoicing when suffering comes. Not just suffering or rejoicing in the midst of the suffering, kind of anesthetized against it and we're rejoicing mindlessly. No, rejoicing for the suffering and thanking God for it. Now that sounds crazy if you don't understand how God works and uses suffering in our lives. And that's what I want to share with you this morning. I don't claim to have exhaustive knowledge on this subject, certainly. But God's been speaking to me and talking to me about some perspectives that have been helpful to me, that have strengthened me and have encouraged me, and I want to pass on to you uh, some of these perspectives as I've been able to synthesize them and, and boil them down in my own thinking, that they're becoming more and more real to me in my life personally, and as they're that way, then I can give them to you, hopefully in a manner which you'll be able to relate to them. There's an interesting idea presented, I think, in the second and the third verse here, when Paul says that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The very first aspect, or the very first visible evidence that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God is that we rejoice in suffering. When I'm rejoicing in suffering, that's evidence that I'm already rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. If I'm not rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God, I'm rejoicing in me and what I can do, and I'm miserable and I can't do very much, and so when suffering comes, I'm certainly not going to rejoice in suffering. Because the focus is on me. It's not on him. Does that make sense to you? When you come into worship, and I know many of you are in, in the midst of all kinds of things in your life. Several of you are suffering any number of things right now this morning. And you've come here to share in the fellowship and to worship and to praise God, to participate in the rejoicing in the hope of God's glory. Am I right? Yes. And when you find yourself rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God as you celebrate with the congregation, as you lift up your, your voices in praise, 
you find all of a sudden you've forgotten about your suffering. Maybe not totally, but significantly enough, you're carried off. And you're rejoicing now in the midst of suffering. Suffering's still there, but you're not cognizant so much of it, and you're rejoicing. But not only that, you are also aware of the reality that you are suffering, because you see the flesh reminds you, doesn't it? Satan comes blowing in your ear and says, oh yeah, you're rejoicing, but what about this thing that's going on in your life right now? And somehow you're strengthened to be able to say, I rejoice anyway. And you, you, as you say that to yourself, as you respond that way, you're thinking, this is crazy. <laughs> but you're, you're born along, you're carried along, and you find yourself really beginning to rejoice in suffering. That's astounding. Absolutely astounding. Suffering is inevitable, isn't it? I mean, it's a given. <laughs> it's around. You just look around. It's all over the place. And in all degrees and in all manners, it presents itself continuously to us as human beings. Suffering is inevitable. There's no person who's immune from it. Everybody's going to suffer. In the book of Job, marvelous passage we're going to look at later on. One of Job's friends in the fifth chapter makes this statement. Man is born to trouble. As surely, he says, as the sparks fly upward from the fire, man is born to trouble. That's encouraging, isn't it? That's what you came to church to hear. <laughs> Jesus in John's Gospel says that that we're going to uh, experience and we're going to suffer many things. Now he's speaking to us really primarily as Christians. He's not even addressing this, the issue of just being human beings. Human beings suffer. But you know what? Christians are going to suffer more. Why? Because they're Christians. Why is that? I thought we became a Christian and got life got better. Well, in one sense it really does. Because now you have the hope of the glory of God. The hope of salvation. The hope of eternal life. But you see, while we're here, we're going to suffer from the world because they hate us. We're going to suffer from the flesh because the, the flesh battles continually against the spirit who lives in me. And we're going to suffer from the devil who's going to attack us, who's going to tempt us, who's going to present us with all manner of trials that weren't there before. And so we're going to suffer. Paul says, and Luke records it, it's in the 14th chapter of Acts. He says it's through much trial, much tribulation, that we enter in, that we take possession of the kingdom. That whole issue speaks to persevering in the faith, doesn't it? Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, he says this thing. He says, we are destined for trials. Great. <laughs> You became a Christian, first thing they told you is get ready because you're going to be destined for trials. And you see, you have to really want to be a Christian. You have to want glory. You have to want to be saved if you're willing to face that reality and say, okay. But the things we're going to talk about this morning will give you a basis for saying, okay. Will being a basis of saying, bring it on. Paul says in the 8th chapter of Romans, he says, I don't count the sufferings in this world anything compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in me. Isn't that wonderful? Yes. So suffering's inevitable. 
The word, the Greek word that Paul uses in this passage, when he uses, it's translated in English, suffering, the word is thlipsis, or thlipsis. It's a Greek word, and it means, conveys the idea of a, of a, a heavy pressure, a pressing down, a pressing together. And it was used uh, to describe, uh, most often it was used to describe the, the pressing of olives to get the oil out of them or the pressing of grapes to get the juice out of them, which would produce wine. That was how the word was used, and that was its most familiar usage in that culture. The very first time that this word is used, if you study the etymology of the word, you discover something very interesting. The very first time that this particular word is used to describe human suffering is in the New Testament. The Greek culture, the Roman culture, did not appropriate that word and use it to describe human suffering. Only the Christians in the primitive early church took that word and began to apply it to themselves because they began to see and understand that great pressure was being brought to bear on their life. A great squeezing, a great pressing down on them in the person, in the, in the, in the uh, uh, personage of suffering, uh, persecution, and trials. They visualized that. They saw themselves as as very literally olives and grapes being put into a vat and being pressed for the purpose of what? Of getting oil. Of getting the grape juice which would produce wine. Now there's something interesting here. The Bible uses oil, olive oil, and wine. They are symbols of, guess what? Joy. They're symbols of rejoicing. They're symbols of glad hearts. Are you kind of getting the picture here? I hope so. When we look at this, when we see, and even in that culture, in the early church culture, in the early New Testament times, in the Greek culture there, oil was used as a cosmetic. It was rubbed on the face to make the face shine, to reveal a, a joyous and glad heart. In uh, the 104th Psalm, the psalmist talks about praising God who gives us oil to make our face shine and gives wine that gladdens men's hearts. God's to be praised for these gifts. Jesus, when he talks about fasting in the fifth chapter of Matthew's Gospel, he says a, a thing that, that ties right in with all this. He says, when you fast... Don't go around all glum and bummed out, you know, say, well, I'm fasting, or not spiritual. He says, put on new clothes, wash your face, and then what? Anoint your head with oil. Shine, let your face shine. Anoint your face with oil. That people know that you're rejoicing. Not that you're sad, that you're rejoicing. So oil is a, is a picture, is a symbol of rejoicing, of joy. Now remember, it's the oil and the wine, or the oil and the juice of the grape that are the symbols of rejoicing. It's not the olives and the grapes that are the symbols. Are you with me? Lots of Christians, Jesus says in the 15th chapter of John's Gospel, the 11th verse, he says this. He says, I want your joy to be what? 
What's the word? Full, complete. He doesn't say, I want your joy to be partial. I want you to have a little bit of joy. I want your joy to be incomplete. No, he says, I want your joy to be complete. I want it to be full. And despite that, there are lots and lots of Christians, good Christians, people who love the Lord, people who have their doctrine straight, people who are born again, people who come to church every week, people who tithe, people who have been baptized, people who are faithful to raise their children right. Everything's in order. But guess what? They have no joy. You say, is that possible? Yes. Sure it is. You rejoice all the time? I don't. My joy isn't full. I want it to be. I long for it to be. But it's not. It's not. I'm not a bad person. Neither are you. But we don't have full joy. We have lots of olives and grapes. Don't we? I mean, our life is full of ripe, plump fruit. Lots of olives and grapes. But the olives and grapes have to be what? Pressed. That they might give up their what? Oil. That the oil of gladness, the oil of joy might flow. That the wine that gladdens your heart, the joy of the heart might be present. And that only happens when the fruit is pressed. You could have the finest fruit. The finest fruit in your life. But unless you submit to the process of the pressing... Now, did you know that olives and grapes don't give up their juice willingly? You ever realize that? You ever notice that? You set a plate of olives out there, or a plate of grapes, and they, they just naturally scream out, they just naturally exude their juice. Isn't that true? They don't, do they? No. Not at all. You and I don't naturally exude joy. You sit us out there on the plate, you get us in the congregation, we're all together, just like a whole bunch of olives and grapes, we're just all sitting here. We look great. Plump, full, ripe, everything's there. But you know what? The juice, the essence, is hidden inside, isn't it? It's locked inside, isn't it? And unless somehow some means is found to get it out, it's going to stay there. And if we sit here too long, we're just going to end up drying up. You set a plate of olives out there or a plate of grapes, they're just going to dry up. There's got to be a means, there's got to be a way to get those things to give up their juice, to give up the oil. And that's why suffering, that's why the early Christians viewed suffering as the means that God would use that they might, what? Allow their joy to flow out. What a thought, huh? Wouldn't it be nice if there was a different way? I prefer a different way. I wish there were a different way. But I'm just a dumb old olive. <laughs> and I don't give it up. God is going to get it out of me. 
God's going to cause me to rejoice as he brings the pressure to bear in my life. He gives me understanding as he puts his hand on my life and keeps guiding me, directing me. Now the issue becomes for us, are we satisfied with our olives and grapes or are we willing to have more? Remember, it's the oil and the wine that are the symbols of joy, not the fruit. Now there's three steps to joy. Let me run these past you real quickly. The first step is that you must be a believer. You've got to possess olives and grapes. The non-believer, the person who's not given their life to Christ, does not produce olives and grapes. They don't have them in their life. The non-believer, the Bible says, has thorns and thistles. Now when thorns and thistles are pressed, they produce thorn juice and thistle milk. <laughs> Not exactly designed to what? To gladden the heart and make the face shiny. Thorn juice and thistle milk. Have you ever tasted thistle milk? Terrible. But the Bible teaches us that that's where we were as unbelievers and when those things, when suffering comes in our life, it just produces more bitterness. Now, suffering does one or two things. It makes you, what, better or bitter? If you're not a believer, and if you don't have olives and grapes in your life, then you have thorns and thistles, and it's going to produce thorn juice and thistle milk. So first of all, the first step to uh, obtaining joy is to have olives and grapes in your life, to be a believer. The second step is to be willing to become dissatisfied with the mere possession of olives and grapes. And lots of people are satisfied just to be saved, just to have some clear doctrine, to know the vocabulary, to do a little service, and that's it. But you see, to move into the realm of joy, to the place where you can rejoice in suffering, requires that we be willing to become dissatisfied with the mere possession of the fruit. Now I can, I can have fruit, we all have the fruit, and I can be willing to come to a place where I'm dissatisfied where I am spiritually. I want to enter into the kingdom deeper, richer. I want to be able to rejoice in suffering more consistently. Have it be real. But you see, that gets to be a little scary right about now, doesn't it? Do you know the name Gethsemane? Do you remember that name? That's the garden where Jesus travailed the night before he died. Do you know that that word means Gethsemane? It means pressing, pressure, the garden of pressure. And Jesus came to the place in that garden where he, what? was dissatisfied. He could have been very satisfied with healing people physically, with teaching and having all the right doctrine, telling people about God. But that wasn't enough. There was, he needed to move further in the work. The writer to the Hebrews says an astounding thing in the 12th chapter. He says, for the joy set before him, for the joy set before him, he endured the shame of the cross. 
actually more than endured it, he disregarded the shame of the cross. He was dissatisfied with just the, the fruits that were available. He wanted more, and he was obedient and willing. And that leads us to the third point. That's the willingness to surrender. That's the issue, isn't it? Surrender. The willingness to surrender, the willingness to embrace the very thought of suffering. To welcome it. To see it as coming from God's hand. And to welcome it. And to be in there and to pray, God, not my will but yours be done. You know when I pray that prayer? Right away, fearful thoughts enter my mind. Does that happen to you too? God, not my will, but yours be done. Oh no, what's going to happen now? I've had thoughts, you know, the enemy comes in and my flesh recoils, and they're right out of the pit of hell. Satan starts to scare me for praying that prayer. God's going to take my wife or my son. He's going to maim me. He's going to do some incredible thing. And you know what? I've been able to come to the place in my life where I've been able to say, God, even if it's that, I trust you. That's awesome to me. I'm not boasting. I'm just saying that it's, I've been through terrible spiritual struggles to come to the place where I've been able to say, Lord, even if that, I rejoice anyway. I praise you anyway in the midst of my grief because of it. That's incredible. I remember one night I had a dream. I was in that twilight kind of sleep, you know, half in and half out. I've had lots of friends die of cancer and prayed for them, you know, and some horrible deaths. My sister died of a horrible cancer. She was 20 years old. Never forget that. I'll never forget this. I was laying in that sleep, dreaming, and I dreamt that, that God came to me and said, it's part of my plan for you that you have this cancer. It's a horrible throat cancer, which would choke off my windpipe. I'd have to have a, a tracheotomy and all the yucky stuff that I'd seen other people go through. And I just recoiled. And I remember struggling in my flesh against that. Now, I'm not saying that God said that or God's going to do it. All I'm saying is that this is part of the process of my coming to terms with whatever happens in my life. And I remember wrestling through that and laying there and just fighting and saying, no, you know, and wanting to rebuke Satan and all that stuff. And finally I just surrendered and I said, Lord, you know, even if it's that, even if for whatever reasons you allow that, I can't fathom, but, but I know you do in other people's lives. And even if you allow that in my life, okay, I surrendered. I surrendered to the process. And I didn't surrender once for all. I just entered into the process of surrendering. It's a re-surrender every day, you know. You're reaffirming, oh yeah, that's right, I surrendered. Important. Absolutely important. So the three steps of joy is you've got to be a believer, you've got to have the olives and the grapes. You've got to be dissatisfied with the possession of the olives and the grapes. You've got to want more, and you've got to be willing to surrender to the process of the pressing. Oh, how can I surrender? Well, the only way you can surrender is if you know something about God and you know something about his purposes for suffering so that they are no longer a threat to you. As you grow in insight and understanding, 
I want you to picture, if you will, in your mind, two individuals. Now you're just looking at them from a human perspective, and they're pretty much the same, and both of them are suffering the identical ordeal. No difference in their ordeal. And you look at them, and there doesn't seem to be any discernible difference, and so you're forced to the conclusion that the cause of each one's ordeal is probably the same, and the result is going to be the same. Now that's just from a human perspective. That's from an uneducated, just plain human perspective. Now let's look at it from a second perspective. Let's look at it from a heavenly perspective. Look through the eyes of an angel who's observing this, these two individuals suffering the identical ordeal. You look at it with these, these kind of, of, of eyes, and you see all of a sudden a tremendous difference in these two individuals. First of all, the first believer, the first person is a believer. The second person is a non-believer. That's the first astonishing difference you see between them, that you discern, that you weren't able to discern just with human eyes. The second thing you see is that the, the unbeliever is suffering at the hands of Satan directly because he is in his power. You know what the Bible teaches? Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Satan does whatever he wants with those who are his own. He has free reign with him. He does whatever he wants, whenever he wants, and not for any particular purpose other than just pure destruction. That's all. See, that's what Jesus came to save us from. The tyranny of sin and Satan. The ultimate destruction. And so you see this one individual. The second individual you look at, you see is suffering the same ordeal, but with a different cause. You see a loving father bringing his hand to bear on this person's life, but for a purpose. The cause is different, and the purpose is different. The result is going to be different. And you stand back, and all of a sudden your eyes are opened to, to a dimension you never saw before. In Jeremiah, the 29th chapter, there's a marvelous thing that God says. Verse 11. Listen to this. God speaks to his people, and he speaks to them in the midst of suffering. You see, Israel is off in Babylon. They've been carried off in captivity, and they're suffering great deprivation. And listen to what God says to them. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. And plans to give you hope and a future. Now this is what God says to people who are in the midst of suffering. And that's not only to Israel, it's to every single one of us who are in the midst of suffering. When you're in suffering, you can turn to Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, and you can know with confidence that God has plans, and he knows what his plans are. He's organized your life. He's got it all planned out on the drawing board, and now he's carrying it out. And his plans for you are good, not for evil, not for harm. His plans are you for you to prosper and have a future, have hope. Astounding, isn't it? You see, when you look from a heavenly perspective, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, Paul writes there, the great safety net verse, I like to call it. 
He says, and we know that God causes all things to work together. Not just some things, all things. Even the evil, even the bad, even the suffering that comes across our path. He causes all those things to work together for my good because what I love him and have been called according to his purpose. That helps me. That gives me confidence that when I am suffering, that it's not for some needless, foolish, no reason... It's that there's this purpose behind it. And God is the only being in existence who can take the evil that comes across my path and he can turn it around and reshape it and cause it for my good. That's astounding. Do we have that perspective deeply held? That's the question. Paul writes, we've been justified. We have peace with God. We stand in grace. There's no condemnation. He's forgiven us completely, totally, fully. He loves us. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And we also rejoice in our suffering. Why not rejoice in suffering now? Why not? Isn't our Heavenly Father in charge? Yes. Is there anything outside of his power and control? No. Doesn't he have plans for us? Yes. Jeremiah has already told us. For I know the plans I have for you. Plans for good. Plans for a future. Plans to prosper you. Plans for hope. I know I have plans. So God has a plan for my life. And he's working his purposes in my life every day. I'm confident of that. So therefore, if these things are all true, then the question comes up. Shall we not joyfully receive from him whatever it is that he chooses to give us in our life? Whatever it is he allows, he permits to come into our life each day, shall not we joyfully receive it because we know that he's in charge? That he's got a plan and he's working his plan? Now at this point, I need to say something to you. Though you may not yet be at the point of rejoicing, don't be bummed. (laughs) Don't feel, don't go out of your all condemned and, oh man, I'm not rejoicing, I'm not a good Christian, you know. Though you're not rejoicing, God's still not mad at you. Though you can't grasp this perspective, though you can't quite yet see it and receive it, though you don't receive with joy whatever he brings into your life, don't feel like God's mad at you. Let me affirm to you, God loves you right now, this moment, whoever you are, if you're a believer, as much right now as he ever possibly could love you. Rest in that knowledge. Rest in that knowledge. That's what the Bible teaches us. Though you're not perfect, though you're not there, you're not complete yet, Though you want to rejoice in suffering, but you're not able to, you're not willing to, maybe. God's not mad at you. Okay? Take heart. It's important to understand. Now, we also need to say something about sin. Because as we talk about God, and we talk about suffering, it's very easy for some people to misunderstand and think, that God is the author of suffering.
God is not the author of sin. He is not the author of suffering. Paul writes in this fifth chapter, in the twelfth verse, he said that sin entered into one man, by, by one man, the man Adam. Sin, what does he mean? He means he's talking about the disease that has infected all of creation that causes us to continue to fall short. God is not the author. He didn't cause it. But sin entered in, and sin brought with it death. And in death is encompassed all the suffering that we experience. And while God is not the author or the cause of it, God is able to look down and see it and work it and use it for his purposes. Because he is so incredibly creative and powerful and able. There's no waste in God's economy of things. He can even use suffering. He can even use sin to work his ends, to work his purposes. But he's not the author of it. So it's very important to remember that, to note that, so that we don't impugn God's character. There's three purposes for suffering, as I understand them. And they are significant to understand. And as we think about them, they begin to bring to us cause for rejoicing. The first purpose for human suffering from God's perspective, is that suffering is corrective. God corrects us. We all get off the path, don't we? When you get off the path, you don't lose your salvation. God doesn't kick you out of the kingdom. He doesn't disown you. You're a child of God. You've been born again. You've been adopted into his family. You've been given the Holy Spirit, Paul says in Ephesians, as the seal as the guarantee of the redemption which will be revealed. And so you get off the path. What does God do? Well, he has means of correcting. It's called discipline. When your children disobey, when my son disobeys me, do I disown him? Do I say, you were a son, now you're an unson. <laughs> you're no longer my son. No. I love him. And I what? Discipline him. I correct him. He's way out here doing his thing. And I say, let's come back. Let's come back. I give him ample warning. He doesn't respond. Then I bring what? Suffering to bear in his life. <laughs> I take him to the divine woodshed, so to speak. Suffering comes to bear. It's corrective. Hebrews, the 12th chapter, talks about that. Read that passage. It's profound. Because in that passage, God speaks about the discipline of a father who loves his sons, who loves his children. A father who doesn't love his children is only going to spoil them and will never train them, will never discipline them, will never teach them. Those of us, if you grew up and you were involved with athletics and you had a coach who was concerned in you, a coach who loved you, a coach who cared about you, a coach who wanted to bring out the potential in your life, what did he do? He disciplined you. He trained you. He made you suffer. Was it punishment? No. Was it because you sinned? No. It was because, why? Well, he was training you. 
He was honing you, bringing you into the path. Important. So first of all, suffering is what? It's corrective. Hosea says a wonderful thing. When, when God speaks to the prophet Hosea in the Old Testament, and he says, now here I want, I want to make an object lesson out of you to Israel. I want you to go marry a prostitute, a harlot. What? Go marry a harlot. Okay, Lord. He goes and marries a harlot, and sure enough, the harlot leaves him and you know, gets involved with all these other men. And that was a picture of Israel. And God was saying to Israel, you're like Hosea's wife. And you're going off and you're playing the harlot with all these other gods. You're involved in all this other idolatry. And because you're this way, now, God doesn't give up on them. Indeed, the New Testament says that. But God brings discipline to bear on his people. And he says in chapter 2 of Hosea, verse 6, he says, I have surrounded you with hedges of thorns, and I have built around you walls to contain you. You see, when we get off the path, suffering comes to correct us, to bring us back, to keep us from getting any further away. It's for our benefit and for our good. Isn't that cause for rejoicing? In Hebrews, that 12th chapter, the writer says, you know, discipline, when it happens, it doesn't seem like it's much fun. <laughs> In fact, it's painful. But later on, we see that it was for our good. You know, as you grow up as a child, uh, my son says to me proverbially the same thing I said to my dad, if this hurts you more than it hurts me, then why are you doing it? <laughs> and I never remember my dad. My dad saying to me, he says, you won't understand it until you have children of your own. And now I understand. <laughs> I tell my son the same thing. I said, you won't understand it until you have children of your own. <laughs> oh, Dad. <laughs> you know, kids are great. Oh, they're great. You know, God has taught me more through my son about me and my relationship to him than, than I could ever hope to teach my son. Astounding. And so we see that this is corrective. And, and so Hosea, in response, or the... God, in response to Hosea's wife, builds a hedge of thorns and walls around her to protect her, to keep her from wandering off any further. What's the first thing? How should you respond when you find yourself surrounded by a hedge of thorns? You should probably stand still, huh? <laughs> Don't move an inch. Because if you start thrashing around, you're going to get cut up by all the thorns, right? Sure. So stand still. Oh, a marvelous passage. Psalm 46, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. Get quiet. Don't budge. Be still. Don't start thrashing around. Why is this happening to me? Be still and know that I'm God and I've got you. I've got you. What happens when you come to a wall? Stop. Don't bang into it. Stop. When God puts a wall up there, stop. What's the best thing to do in front of a wall? Pray. Kneel down and start praying. We had this huge wall in front of us with respect to the growth in this church. Huge wall. What are we saying to do? We say we recognize the wall. Let's bow down and let's pray. Let's what? Let's seek the Lord. Let's trust in the Lord with all of our heart. God, I trust in you with all my heart. Lord, I don't want to lean on my own understanding. I want to trust in you. I want your understanding. 
You see, that ought to be our prayer, huh? And as we pray that way, God opens the door and he makes our path straight as we trust in him. And so when the walls are there, when the thorns are there, don't thrust about. Don't try to avoid them. Don't try to pound them down. Stop. Because the work is probably corrective work in your life. The suffering is there to bring you back to know and to understand and follow God's will. That's the first purpose for suffering. The second one is kind of similar, but it's a little bit different. It's constructive suffering. It's that which God uses to make us more like Jesus. So suffering can be to bring us back into the path when we've gone astray. And suffering can be purely to make us more like Jesus. It's the idea of of, uh, whittling away at all of the, the peripheral stuff that obscures the image of Christ, that that image may emerge much more clearly. And all of us have lots of dross in our life. Lots of stuff, lots of remnants that are hanging on that God is continually working on and bringing suffering to bear in our life as constructive. It's like we're, we're a block of marble and the sculptor is standing before this block of marble and he envisions the finished sculpted product, the, the image. He can see it in that block. Nobody else can see it but him. And so he brings the chisel and the hammer to bear on it, doesn't he? The only problem is that we don't stand there like a block of marble and let him do it. Our flesh runs. We don't like the feeling of the pain of the chisel and the hammer brought to bear so that that image might be brought out and clearly seen and everybody could stand there and go, wow, I never saw that in that. (laughs) Yes, but the sculptor did. The artist did. That's why he says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Not only just in our humanity, but also in our spirituality as he remakes us. God is an incredible craftsman and he has a great vision for each one of us. Great purposes for each one of us. And part of the suffering that comes into our life, the reason for it is to hone us, is to refine us, is to make us clearer and clearer that image. Isaiah says a wonderful thing in the 49th chapter. I love this. He describes himself before he was born that the Lord knew him and the Lord picked him out, singled him out, and the Lord began to work on him. And he says, now the Lord has made me a polished arrow. Isn't that a wonderful thought? A polished arrow. God cut away all the other twigs. He cut away all the, all the insignificant things, the bark. There was, there was overlaying the shaft, and he began to work on the shaft. He began to, to just carve it down and make it smooth and straight, and then he polished it. And then Isaiah says, and then he hid me in his quiver. After he polished me, after he prepared me, he put me in the quiver. He hid me away until he wanted to use me. I was available to him, prepared for his use. You see the construction, the work of construction that God did as Isaiah sees it in his life, 
And now he's an arrow that when the Lord calls on him, he can take him out of the quiver and he can load him into the bow and he can use him. In Malachi, the third chapter, God describes himself as one who is a refiner of precious metals, who puts the silver into the crucible and puts it over the fire and heats it up and melts the silver and turns up the heat so that all the impurities rise to the surface and the refiner skims off the impurities off the top so that he has pure silver, pure gold. In First Peter, Peter writes the same thing. He says that our present trials and struggles, our suffering, is for the purpose of refining our faith, which is more precious than gold. And so that at the re- revelation of Jesus Christ, there might be much rejoicing. And you say, you see, there's suffering is not only corrective, it's also constructive. There's a third purpose for human suffering. This is that it is exemplary. God makes examples. He uses us examples. And he also brings suffering to bear in our life for his own reasons. And we don't always have visibility of those reasons. And those are the points at which we bow ourselves humbly before him, trust in his character, and say, Praise you, Lord. I worship you anyway. Turn with me to the ninth chapter of John's Gospel. You know, we often think, the, the ungodly often thinks that uh, because there's no suffering and trials in his life that God's pleased with him. Isn't that true? Yeah, that's the lament of the psalmist. Why is the ungodly, what, flourishing and I'm perishing? That's the great complaint. I've given my life to you, but this guy over here just profanes you and he's doing well. Now, in the ninth chapter of John's Gospel, Jesus deals with this. He addresses that question. Because the problem of thought is, well, surely when there's suffering, it's a result of your own sinfulness. Your sin. You're a sinner, and so God's punishing you. You deserve what you get. The whole ninth chapter is devoted to that one topic and points out God's sovereign purposes, even when there's no real clear visibility of that. John writes this, As he went along, meaning Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? You see where their thinking was? This guy deserved it. He got it because this was the cause. That was the problem of thinking. Now Jesus' response is astonishing. Jesus says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. Now he didn't say that that wasn't an option. He just says in this particular case, it wasn't, this guy isn't blind because he sinned or his parents sinned. That's not the reason he's blind. Now, the very next thing he says is really astonishing. He says, in essence, this guy was born blind. Why? So that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Wait a minute. Do you mean, would God really, you mean a good and loving God? Would he really 
cause this young life to be born this way so that later on he could display what he wanted in this life? Yes. Yes. <gasps> I don't believe in a God like that. My God wouldn't do that. Then you have a very narrow view of God. Paul writes in the ninth chapter of Romans, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He says, doesn't the potter, God, have the right over the clay to make instruments according to his own design and will? Does the clay say to the potter, why did you make me this way? Paul says, who are you, O man, to answer back to who? God. I mean, it causes you to take a step back and say, whoa. Now see, if, you, if that is repulsive to you, if you haven't got a category for that, expand your view of God. Now if you read on in that passage and you follow through with the thought, you see that this guy, Jesus, comes along and demonstrates his power to give him sight that that man might ultimately believe and be saved from hell. Now, I don't know how all that fits into God's plan, but it obviously does. Would he have been saved if he had had sight? Who knows? That's speculation. We haven't got any visibility of that. But according to God working his plan, this was important. And it was a demonstration to the disciples of, of God's sovereignty. That he rules. And they needed to learn that lesson. And later on, when, the, when Jesus' enemies are trying to get this guy to refute Jesus, and they say, don't you know he's a sinner, he's a blasphemer? And his response to them, he says, oh, I don't know if he's a sinner or not. All I know is what? I was blind and now I see. That's his statement. It says, that's his way of saying, I'm following him. He's got something. You guys couldn't do anything for me. I was a blind beggar, but this man freed me. I'm following him. I don't care if he's a sinner or not. That's not even an issue for me. We had a man in our congregation call me this week and tell me of his mom. This guy's Jewish. His mom is an 80-year-old Jewess. Has rebelled and has resisted Christianity and Christ and Jesus for her whole life. She's been debilitated. She doesn't hear and she doesn't see. She's been isolated in a very real way. And her niece took her, because she didn't know where she was going, took her to a Pentecostal prayer meeting. <laughs> and these people didn't know much about her except that she was Jewish and she was there and somebody prayed for her and pop, her ears opened up and she could hear. Her niece told her son, her son called her up, talked to her on the phone. She could hear him over the phone, and he was just astounded. He's a believer. He's part of our congregation. He's been praying for his mom for a long time. And he said to her, do you believe in Jesus? You know what her response was? I hear. Whereas I was deaf, now I can hear. 
Do you believe in Jesus? I can hear. I was blind. Now I see. Powerful, huh? God does things. He arranges events. He works with suffering for his ultimate purpose and glory. Why don't you turn with me to the first chapter of Job. This is really going to blow you away. God uses suffering, and suffering is exemplary. I want you to think with me of being put on display before the whole created order, the visible realm and the invisible realm being put on display. And God using suffering in our life to prove that he can win and keep our allegiance regardless of the attacks of the world, the flesh, or the devil. And this is most clearly displayed in the life of Job. Job is the classic study in suffering. The classic. And I believe it is the study of suffering, the purpose being exemplary suffering. God displaying one of his children and demonstrating to everything that they will stay, no matter what. The first verse of the book of Job introduces us to Job and sets the stage. The writer says that this man was blameless, upright, feared God, shunned evil. I mean, he was right on. He had it all together. The idea being that Job wasn't going to deserve anything he got. Now you picture this. Here's Job. He's doing everything he's supposed to be doing, right? He's going to church. He's in his mini church. He's faithful. He's accountable. Confesses his sins. Tithes. Ministers. Great family man. Takes care of his wife, his kids. Everything's in order. Fears God. He's down here doing what he's supposed to be doing. Little does he know what's in store. And the whole of the created order standing out there watching. It's all focused on Job. Verse 6. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. He's the God of this world, and he can do that. And then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on earth. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears me and shuns evil. Have you checked out my servant Job? Solid guy, isn't he? See how he loves me? Look at his faithfulness. You checked him out? Satan says, yeah, I've checked him out. I've looked him over. You know what? You know why Job fears you? You know why he shuns evil? Not for nothing. He says, you put a hedge around him and around his household and everything he has. You protect him. He says, you bless the work of his hands so that the flocks and the herds are spread throughout the land. 
But I'll tell you what, something, God, you stretch out your hand against him, you take away all that he has, and I guarantee you he's going to curse you to your face. He's only faithful because you're blessing him. Bring trials and tribulation into his life and see if he rejoices. I guarantee you he won't. Now I want to tell you something. Satan has access to the throne to make that same accusation against every single one of us. God says, where have you come from? Oh, I've been roaming around the earth. Have you considered my servant Adam? Huh? You consider my servant Jan? You consider my servant Terry? My servant Ron? Yeah, I've considered them. They're faithful, aren't they? Yeah, but you protect them. You do nice things in their life. Of course they're going to like you. Of course they're going to praise you. Let me have Adam. We'll see if they do it. Well, let's see what God's response is. Verse 12, the Lord said to Satan, Very well. Everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Now I want you to see something here. Nothing like this happens. No devastation comes into our life unless God first allows it. And God gives permission. We're protected by him. And when he chooses to lower the hedge for his purposes, he lowers the hedge. And he gives access to Satan to our life. And then if you read the rest of the chapter, you see all manner of devastation comes from every possible place. Storms, the weather goes crazy. Tribes of, of pagans come down and wipe out his land and his people. All kinds of things happen. Satan brings that stuff to bear. But God gives him permission. Why? Because God is going to use Job as an example of his keeping power and the fact that Job is faithful. Now, the whole thing happens. Drop down with me to verse 20. He says, at this, after the last report came, everything's gone, he's totally devastated. At this, Job got up and tore his robe, shaved his head. He went into mourning. He was in mourning, and then he fell on the ground, and he did what? Worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be what? Praised. Job's rejoicing and suffering. He's faithful. He's standing out there as a beacon, as an example to all the beings in the universe who are observing this whole process going, whoa. Well, verse 22 says, In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth, going back and forth in it. And then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Mm-hmm. <laughs> There is no one like him on the earth. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him. Skin for skin, Satan says. A man will give all he has to save his own neck. 
That's not true. There have been lots of people who gave their life for very noble causes. Isn't that true? But Satan says, oh, I'll tell you, you, just to save his neck, save his skin, he'll curse you if you let me at him physically. Verse 6, the Lord said to Satan, very well then, he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. You can afflict him, but you can't kill him. God, imagine what's going through Job's mind. In the midst of his eyes, where's this coming from? From God, he knows it. Why? He's rejoicing in the Lord. He knows his God's sovereign hand has something to do with all this. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. And then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. Now, something, this is astonishing to me. This occurred to me just yesterday when I read this passage again closely. When Satan destroyed all of Job's family, he didn't destroy his wife. And I thought, that's interesting. Is his wife going to be a blessing to him or a bane? This is an important lesson here. Very important lesson. She can be a helpmate to him, or is she going to be a pain in the neck? She can aggravate a situation, or is she going to help him in the midst of it? He doesn't destroy her because Satan uses her to incite against him. His wife said to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Get it over with. Why are you hanging on? He replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Are we just fair weather with God? We can accept the good but not the trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. He was an example. And you and I, when suffering comes into our life, we can look at it from three perspectives. First, you must stop and examine your life. You must stop and be still before the Lord and say, Lord, show me if there be any hurtful way in me. Show me if I've gotten off the path. If this suffering has come into my life as corrective. That's the first assumption you make. The second assumption and the second understanding is this. Lord, now that you brought this suffering in my life, use it constructively. Have your way in me. Make me a polished arrow to be hidden in your quiver for your use. And then thirdly, you can rejoice because you know, absolutely, you have the confidence of knowing you're on display. When suffering comes in your life, guess what? You're on display. God is proving to the whole unseen realm that he has won you and he keeps you. And that you can rejoice even in your suffering. And you can say, God, God, receive glory as I stand firm. Receive glory as I rejoice even in my suffering. Why? Because my hope is in you. Amen?
Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace. Again. Lord, I thank you for suffering. You've taught me some incredible things about this thing called suffering. You've shown me how clearly I can, if I will, rejoice in suffering. Lord, because you use it to correct me and to construct me. And Lord, you allow me the great privilege of standing before all of creation and being an example of a person who trusts and hopes in you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you're God. Thank you that you love me. Thank you that you are working your plan in my life. Thank you for the confidence that you give me to that effect. I praise you, Lord. You are truly worthy of all my worship and my allegiance. You're worthy of the worship and allegiance of all of us.